The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm glad uh, everybody out there who's listening could listen today. I'm here with uh, my son, Daniel, who's a retirement income certified professional, Daniel Rudy. Daniel, thanks for uh, joining me on the show. I know you're a little tired after our wedding trip into Pensacola, Florida, where they apologize for 68 and sunny. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. And I'm here with uh, Ryan Repko, financial advisor at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Good morning. You can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 3515357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, guys, uh, here we are two shows into the year. It's the 23rd of January, and uh, it seems like 2018's taken off where 2017 ended. Um, broad U.S. market is up some four or five percent, depending on which index you look at. Seems like more of the same, and uh, you know, where you get more and more commentary from people about how bonds, owning bonds, are not so much fun, and how how can we own any bonds, and how come we don't own more, you know, stock market stuff. So you, it, that's starting to creep in a little bit. I've noticed that, but uh, and. Uh, you guys are going to be happy because I'm not going to refer to the economy as the plow horse economy any longer <laughs> because it looks like we're going to be have the third quarter now in a row of, of uh, above 3% GDP. And uh, we got a couple quarters back to back in 2013 or so. I think it was 2013, 2014, but then it kind of petered off. Uh, so it's been really since about 2004 or five since we've had three back-to-back quarters. Now it's not in the books yet, but when you look at all the estimates that are generally pretty reasonable uh, by this time, they pretty much know where the, the fourth quarter. There's always revisions, but I think they're project protect projecting 3.3 percent, and um, that's a pretty strong rate. And uh, so prior to that, we're basically were in this two percent ish growth, which you know was kind of steady. But that's where I, you know, that's why I came up with the plow horse, you know, commentary show after show, year after year, seemingly. So maybe I'm going to be able to drop that. It certainly picked up its gait quite a bit. And uh, and I think that's part of really, I think this is what, you know, people always wonder, why is the stock market going up up so much? Well, I think it's two factors. Uh, when that's what it tends to do over time, uh, obviously, is not one of the two. It's just in the backdrop. We have this permanent rising trend. Um, but you know when you when people get a sense of and if fred was here there's no dr fred gertz today um he's on a cruise he let me know this last night <laughs> so it was fine um but you get into these economies that are gaining strength and i think it was kind of apparent to a lot of people certainly business people and the, the run you know the management of great businesses that the economy's so just getting stronger regulation burdens are getting we, i think that's priced into the market and i think that got priced in and it tends to get priced in way ahead of about the time everybody realizes it. And, and I think that's the main thing. And then, of course, when you reduce corporate income taxes substantially from 35% to 21%, that instantly increases after-tax earnings. And that's really what the market is valuing, is where they're saying, how much do I have to pay for those earnings? Everything's staying the same at the same uh, price-to-earnings multiple You know, at the time. Um, you know, When you increase earnings maybe 10 or 11%, it probably means you're going to get a boost in the value of the market. It's not a lock. It's not guaranteed that that's ever going to happen. But I think those go a long way to explain it. But I think a stronger economy, less regulatory uh, hassles, at least that's what uh, a lot of business people are saying, uh, and, and then the tax reform. I think we're in pretty good, we're in pretty good shape. Having said that, that in no way, um, and Fred would be the first one to say it if he was here, but that's not anything to build a portfolio out of or a strategy out of it's just saying, look, this is yesterday's news. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, surprises happen. And, you know, it's always the, the bigger the economic surprise, the more surprise there is in it. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead, Ryan. And I think the investor sentiment right now is that the, um, 
the market's only going up. Uh, there's no alternative right now. It seems that we're just all so subjective to this recent climb and climb and climb right. without much of a correction over the past year. And you were just saying, what, there's been no 5% correction in the past? This is actually months? the longest period. Uh, the lo so the lo longest period prior to this was 394 days, business, you know, stock market days. And this was, that was in the late 90s. Uh, as of Friday, it was up 395 uh, days without a 5% correction. So this, in the last, in the time before that, the longest one was 386 days, and that was pretty much uh, just before the mid-60s. And so it's, it's quite extraordinary what we're going through, and uh, that has a tendency, um, because of people's uh, recent behavioral bias. Uh, we were talking before the show, uh, the guys and I, about how many cycles I've been through. So seven or eight or nine years ago, you'd get clients wondering, why in the heck do we have any money in the stock market to begin with? I prefer to say the great companies of America and the world. Um, and now suddenly, more and more questions about bonds. You know, how, why do we have 20% or 30 or 40% in bonds? And of course the answer is, it, and it's kind of interesting because when you create a financial plan a retirement income plan for a client and maybe they came on two or three or four years ago and they and they come on in this so when you build a plan you're always assuming that you're going to have horrible returns you're not trying to earn horrible returns but we have to admit as advisors there's a couple of things we don't know we don't know what returns are going to be in the future and we don't know what draw we're going to get we don't know whether we're going to get bad returns on the front end of our retirement or on the back end a couple of pretty big deals and uh and so because of that the, the process of how much money can I spend for my portfolio um, tends to be rather conservative on the front end. And we kind of follow this policy of a, a client should not take on any more uncertainty than is necessary uh, to do everything they wanted to do as they envisioned it, as they described their ideal retirement on the front end of our a relationship with them. Shouldn't take any more uncertainty on uh, than they need to. Well, an interesting thing happens when you don't have horrible returns and you have above average returns like we've had the last three, four, five, maybe we could go on beyond that. Uh, plans become what we call overfunded quite easily. Well, we didn't get the horrible returns. We didn't even get poor returns. We didn't get average returns. We've had the stock, when I'm talking about we, I, I mean the, the broad U.S. market as an example has provided pretty strong returns, above average returns uh, last year, certainly. And that means a plan is overfunded, which means they can actually reduce the amount of fluctuation they need, typically. And so they can actually pull assets f away from the more volatile or the typically more volatile stock market portion of the portfolio and move more comfortably into, bond, into bonds and still achieve everything they wanted to do. Well, that runs counter to what people, how this behavioral uh, thing that creeps in um, and suddenly people's risk you know, tolerance seemingly goes up, even though it doesn't, and not in my experience. People don't change. Uh, their attitude changes relative to the time quite easily. So uh, unlike Ryan and Daniel, who haven't been through cycle after cycle like I have of either, I was telling them, so if you think people are starting to act a little funny now about their portfolios, that is uh, people that were really risk averse that suddenly want to take on more risk. Well, they'll just say less bonds more stocks, you know, stock park, park market portfolio, that portion. Um, what they're really saying is, look, um, I like the recent returns of stocks better than bonds, so give me more stocks. What they're really saying is, you know what, I suddenly have an appetite to take on more. I'm going to use the term, I usually don't use risk. It's really just take on more fluctuation. Yeah, Daniel. I think one thing to think about when talking about this, it's really what's the money for? And we're talking about those plans. It's like, well, just having a higher return is meaningless unless you have a goal. For, so there's a reason. So it needs to, to buy something. Right. It needs to buy something. So just reaching for higher returns just because you want more money, you think, well, wh what's behind that? Why do you really, why are you going to reach for that higher return? Is it just because you want more money? Because if you're doing everything in your plan that you want, and you're not planning on spending more in the right. future or adding a goal, then it, it sounds bad, but it's almost like a greed thing. Well, it's like, it, well it, 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 
you know, I don't, yes, it is. It's, it's but it's really it's just it's just basically what I figured out a long time ago. It's the way humans are wired. Um, since we were cave people, we were conditioned to move away from pain and move towards things toward things that bring us pleasure. Higher returns of one asset class, broad asset class like stocks, brings us more pleasure than our returns in our bonds. And some people might even say the return of bonds the last seven or eight or nine years have been painful. I want to move away from that suddenly. But, uh, you know, the, the, the guys haven't been through this, as I said, time after time. But these are things that they, they'll learn and are learning. Um, and we have pretty interesting conversations about this stuff. I was telling them about... Um, well, you want to talk about extremes in investor behavior in the mid from about 1995 we were i was telling the guys this be just before the show and to 1999 five years in a row the s p 500 went up 20 percent or so year after year the more volatile technology laden uh, nasdaq index was going up 30 40 percent a year and a broadly diversified global portfolio at the time was oh it was providing returns of somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 percent or so now, normally people earning 12% are ecstatic, but when a no-brainer index fund uh, is earning 20% a year, you know, it, it really, it's hard on everybody emotionally. So I've been through that period. I've been through the other side in 2008, 2009, when everybody thought the world was coming to an end. Everybody and everything was saying, sell everything while you can. And of course, anybody who's listened to the show through all these cycles knows that I'm pretty much steady saying, look, this too shall pass. Uh, in 1999, I would tell people when they said, this time it's different. That's the four-word death song of investors. This time it's different. I use my four words of this too shall pass. And I did the same thing in 2008, 2009. Of course, investors, just being normal human beings in the face of crisis, unprecedented crisis in most people's lives, naturally wanted to move away what was causing them pain, the returns of equities, the negative returns of equities towards the, you know, the comfort of bonds. And, you know, I heard it, you know, in 1999, it was this time it's different. It's a new era. You don't need earnings. You need to have people coming to your website, which they called eyeballs. In 19, 2008, 2009, it was the world's coming to an end. I'm scared. I want to make this big mistake. The four words I heard, in, what I read between it, you were kind of getting to it, Daniel. What you know, so often when a client asks a question, you know, you have to try to figure out as an excellent advisor, what's the question under the question? Because it is okay to go up in equity if it would be. Well, I decided I want to leave more to my kids. It's like well, okay, well, example. that's respectable, but you got to at least know why you're doing it instead of just going. Hmm, returns have been pretty good lately. Yeah, right. And and. I think there's just the human condition that there's such a immense fear of missing out on something. When you're looking across the fence or you're looking at your neighbors and you see that other people put, you know, could be doing better than you, even if they are or they aren't, the fact that you might not be engaging and, and reaping maybe some of the rewards of how the market's doing at that time because you have a plan that's built on the long term rather than just reacting to the short term of the market it can be very hard to stay the course if you don't have somebody there to guide you through and give you the reasons why you're invested in the first place. You know, as I listen to you guys, <clears throat> I find it interesting that we're talking about this in the, in the face of a very strong stock market. Usually we have these conversations with clients during painful periods um, where you're trying to do everything you can to get them, you know, keep them chained to the mast of diversification and to the asset allocation that's required for their plan to work out. Um, but nonetheless, and think about it now. Uh, clients are looking at their portfolios. I've been telling them all along, look, when it's calm and you're cool and collected, this is when you start thinking about rebalancing your portfolio. And suddenly people will shudder when you say, well, well, well that sounds good. I, who doesn't want to rebalance their portfolio? <clears throat> and you say, well, okay, well, we started at 50% equities you know, a year and a half ago, and now you're up to 65 or 68 or 70% equities. Not only does your plan not require you to be 50% equity any longer, you could actually be 40% equity. We need to, at a minimum, rebalance back to where you were, which suddenly they look at you and they realize, well, you're, but, 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 but you're, you're telling me to sell the things that are going up a lot and buy the things that are just kind of earning a small return uh, and then I, that don't fluctuate much. And so I guess what we're probably, we're, we're meandering a little bit in the show today, and I'm going to allow that. Um, because I think this is a 
these are get, become critical points. When I start feeling, when I hear um, common investors, I, I pick up on certain cues from it. And I'm getting that feeling now, which is not a market forecast. It's not a market call by any means. But this is certainly a great time for people to, to take a serious look at their portfolio and look at a minimum rebalancing your portfolio and ask your advisor that's running your plan. And I know for half of you listening, you don't have that in your life. We'll try to fix that. But, but for the people that have an advisor, and more importantly, that have an advisor and they're living, they're working from a plan, which is the only way to go about it, you need to ask your advisor is, first of all, with everything that's happened in the last two, three, four, five years, um, let's dust off that plan and make sure that everything we want to do is still achievable. Um, are we overfunded, which you probably are. If we're overfunded, advisor, what are we going to do about that? And there's only so many moves in the checkerboard. One is, well, in the absence of an additional goal or an expanded goal, we look at removing some fluctuation from their life. And that's how it works. And it tends to be timely. And it's not designed around a market forecast. <coughs> Excuse me. It's designed around a process that naturally when you get average or above average returns, the plan's going to become overfunded. Just like a pension plan can be overfunded. It can have more money in it than is required to make the payouts um, that are going on. So I thought we'd start off a little bit there. We meandered a little bit. Just a couple of days ago, I'm sure everybody was worried about this government shutdown. Um, I wasn't particularly worried about it. Uh, certainly has no impact on my investment attitude uh, or my behavioral attitude, uh, if not even just for the statistics. There's been a number of government shutdowns. This is nothing new. They go back to the 60s. Um, and, and they're equal opportunity, Republican, Democrat. Um, they're tilted maybe one side more than others. But when it comes to investors, we have to think about, well, what could this mean for us? Well, I always back up and say, well, nothing that happens in the next 30 days is going to have an impact on the next 30 years of your life. Trust me on that one. That's, just, that's what history suggests. But when you look at the data, a number of people have done studies. I've probably read, probably seen 12 uh, research papers. This is what happens to the stock market under a closure. So it's a little moot. We were talking about the reason I wasn't rattled is pretty much it's, a, it's, it's been a non-event for the stock market. It appears that investors can overlook the shenanigans that are going on and say, look, this is, these are typically political stunts. This is really has no impact, no material impact on what's going to happen in the economy uh, or the U.S. You know, trade and all those issues. And I think part of that, too, is we've seen it all happen before and we've seen it recently. So you just think back to recent history when there's been threats of a government shutdown, the world kept turning, companies <clears throat> still had to produce the next product that they right. sell. And so you realize that this is just a blip in a short-term chain of events. Yeah, we try just not to get too excited about anything in the near term. Um, anybody's listened to me on this show for 25 or 6 or 7 years, whatever it's been, uh, knows that I'm, I'm not very excitable. Um, I have this view that the uptrend for the prices of the great companies of America and the world is a permanent uptrend. It's going to get over its skis above it, and it's going to go meander well below it from time to time. That's called fluctuation. Um, but if people want to earn the higher returns, or at least the, the expected higher returns, of owning companies instead of lending to them by buying their bonds, fluctuation is something that's not predictable. Nobody would have predicted that over the last 397 days, the stock market would not decline by 5%. Uh, it's, it's, you know, normally it happens once a year. Well, okay, it's not doing it once a year. So these averages don't, you know, don't always mean everything. I was reading an article... Uh, that kind of, I guess, you know, uh, keeps us going on this the theme. When you look at the, what pe people are doing, you kind of try to look at their behavior. Um, there was an article, investors' fear of missing out runs wild as record amounts of money flows into stocks the last four weeks. Well, which, which was interesting, and I was going to put this in my newsletter that I just sent out, but some things had to get, you know, uh, taken out of it because, you know, you guys know I can write a 12-page <laughs> newsletter if uh, left unrestrained. Uh, that really is in the face, flies in the face of what's happened over the last four or five years. The last four or five years, it's been the opposite. Investors have, have missed many of them. When you look at the cash flow data of how people are behaving, well, if you want to know how investors are behaving, go, look where the money is. 
And we can measure this by the cash flows in and out of stock mutual funds and the bond mutual funds and, and vice versa. And then we also don't ignore exchange traded funds, which are just kind of another version of a mutual fund that trades intraday. Suddenly, now that you know we're we're Dow twenty six thousand, uh, in a very short period of time, we've had very powerful returns over the last couple of years, particularly in the last year. Of course, last year was spectacular. Um, now suddenly, everybody's chasing this thing. So we're seeing this behavior sheet, uh, behavior pace, and now it makes you, you a little bit worried, even though it's not really a timeable event, but. Uh, the article said, uh, investors looking to get a piece of the l latest market surge poured cash into stock funds at the highest pace ever during the past four weeks. Well, isn't that kind of almost like, well, it's not really what happened. It's investors are suddenly after all the gains. They're not purchasing yesterday's or last year's or the year before gains. They're purchasing future gains. But I tr trust me on this, guys. It's based on recent conditions. I see this over and over again. Mutual funds and exchange-traded funds that focus on stocks garnered $58 billion in fresh money during the period that ended Wednesday. And this was last Wednesday, according to Merrill Lynch. This rush comes during a period when the S&P 500 rose about 4% and was often one of its fastest starts for a calendar year. Well, to show you how the fastest start of a calendar year really may not mean anything, we go back just a couple of years ago to the beginning of 2016, where we saw articles about the worst six-week Decline first six weeks in America's history in the stock market, and we ended up with a reasonable return for 2016 and a spectacular return for 2017. So it looks like it looks like what we're saying when I look at the flows, you know, show me the money, and it looks like U.S. large cap, which means just U.S. large company funds, uh, funds that specialize basically in owning the largest companies in America. They're the biggest beneficiary by style. Uh, now this goes into what. Some old-time investors will say it may be a little bit worrisome. The late, latest investors' intelligence poll, and investors' intelligence, by the way, may be an oxymoron, <laughs> a professional newsletters at, newsletter editor saw bulls outnumber bears, which just means people that are positive on the stock market versus, you know, not, th you know, I would say bearish, uh, by 66% to 12%, the biggest spread since April of 1986. So, you, you see how suddenly this tide of money is after six or seven of the best bull market years ever are suddenly starting to swamp the boats. That, this is really when I was writing newsletters in 2010 and 11 and 12 about remaining bullish and not being bullish enough. Um, we're kind of starting to get on the other side of that. And that concerns me a little bit. But again, it may concern me, but it doesn't change the way that we invest. Uh, we don't let our opinions and our views of what we might be. We're humans. We have our feelings about things. Um, but I've certainly learned enough, and the guys know um, and have followed that philosophy of, let's just admit we really don't know what the next block of time returns are going to be. It makes life a lot easier. It allows you to circle back and say, well, what are we put on earth for as advisors? It's not to talk about investments. It's to talk about how those investments are going to make their people's lives better. It's the outcome it's not the returns, it's the outcome of the plan that matters and it's gonna drive people's lifestyle for a two to three decade retirement. So just the freeing up of time by admitting you don't know what returns are gonna be, which may sound strange to listeners, guys. Uh, just because I say I don't know what returns are gonna be over the next 30 years, I have a pretty good idea what the distribution of potential returns are. And we live within that. And so we, we, while we uh, admit that we don't know what returns are gonna be, we can draw a pretty good uh, uh, economically sensible distribution of what the returns might be. And then we have to plan that we might get on the poor side of those returns and live as if those might be a reality. And if they're better than that, guess what? We get a more enhanced lifestyle and that's how good planning works. So again, I'm looking at uh, cash levels and mutual funds rose to 5.8% in October of 2016. Now remember, we've been in this major bull market and just <coughs> a couple of years ago and just before Remember, the broad U.S. market um, was up 22% last year. So the broad U.S. market in October of 2016, to just show you how this contrary behavior, even of professional money managers, the cash levels in stock mutual funds rose to 5.8% in October of 2016. That was the highest cash level since November of 2001. So think about this. Stock mutual fund managers had the most amount of cash, earning nothing, 
which was really their call saying we're we're being conservative because we think 2017 probably isn't going to be good and then you get a year like 2017 where the broad u.s market's up 22 percent many areas in the globe up higher uh and you show that that's where that drag of sometimes this professional management gets in the way not only does it cost more the other cost we uh, cost we need to think about is those decisions they're making really market calls and anticipating market events and increasing their cash which is not going to deliver returns and that turns out to be a big problem with mutual funds um, so that kind of you know buttonholes that concept well economically guys now we're going to get into nine ways to prepare for a successful retirement which is a blog i wrote but if fred was here and so i'll do it anyway uh obviously unemployment claims uh, on a, the lowest level in 45 years so that trend continues uh you know everywhere we look at the macro level it, things are seem to be in sync not only in the u.s it seems like all around the globe all the major economies are kind of in sync in an expansion and again we have relatively loose monetary policy so you know there's certain conditions that you would look to expect a recession doesn't appear that any of them are there right now we don't have an inverted yield curve which is a fancy way of saying short-term treasuries don't have a, a a higher yield than long-term treasuries and even if we did it's a year typically or longer before a recession there's housing you don't get new highs and housing prints uh, just before a recession so there's a lot of indicators that make me think that 2018 at least is probably a pretty decent economic year, which is not the same thing as saying go out and buy stocks because it's going to be a good year in stocks. They sometimes in the near term has nothing to do with each other. And then I would be, you know, I'd be a hypocrite if I said that my economic forecast, thinking that 2018 is probably a pretty decent year, and it appears that it's increasing at an increasing rate, when I tell prospective clients right out of the gate that we don't try, that the near-term economic conditions cannot be forecasted. Um, and, and, and it's not that we can't do it, it's that nobody can. So, uh, you know, all in all, you can see why maybe investors are suddenly, you know, even more bullish because they feel like they're getting left behind, many of them. Hopefully, they've been positioned well for the last six or seven or eight years or longer, and they've caught much better returns than anybody anticipated. So... Well, getting on to success, successful retirement, I've been helping people retire successfully for over 35 years. And over those 35 years, I've learned a few things. And, you know, and I've learned about things and things people need to do to prepare. And a lot of it I learned just by six people that end up having successful retirements. You start looking at what are the common things that these people did. Some of them you can anticipate ahead of time without talking to anybody, but some of them just come from watching how people you know, just observe how they behaved, how they lived. And so I recently wrote a blog, and you can read that on RudyWealth.com, uh, about the nine best ways to prepare for your dream in retirement. So the first one, and I don't think this one's going to stun anybody, is to save diligently. Um, every, every successful retiree I know, it seems, tended to have one thing in common. They were diligent savers. And that was kind of a result of basically more sensible spending. And, and they're kind of two sides to the same coin. You show me someone who's a good saver, I'll show you someone who's probably somewhat frugal. You show me some person that's just naturally somewhat frugal, I'm gonna show you somebody that probably had a little more heavier savings and a little heavier lifting from their savings than the average person. So you guys have any thoughts on that, that one? I mean, you, you guys have been at this now for a few years. But in those few years, you've gotten to see what I've seen for over three decades. That it's, there seems to be no accident um, that people that get really great retirements with a five in front of their age or in their early 60s have that common theme. What say you guys? I'd say anybody who's been a diligent saver early and has been continually saving as part of just a lifestyle and not doing it when it was convenient or when it would be a time for them to take a break from saving and do something they want, those are the folks that have done the best. And that's because it's been a mindset from the beginning. Um, and you can put your money into a whole series of different types of accounts, whether it be a taxable account, or uh, you can do even better for yourself by investing in your 401k through work, or even a uh, IRA 
just a personal IRA account so that you get the advantage of tax-deferred growth uh, so that your money can compound over time and uh, you have a better chance by the time you do need that money, maybe in your 50s, 60s, or 70s, that the amount has grown substantially and it's had the the wonderful magic of that compound growth. And the other side of that, and, and I was kind of getting to it, is this idea of lifestyle creep. Um, that's the thing that seems to be the magic. People in their late 50s or mid 50s or early 60s that come in, they don't have any idea whether they're prepared or not. Uh, they don't give themselves enough credit for the saving that they've done. And, f you know, they've foregone some um, things that other people didn't. You know, they didn't buy new cars as frequently. They didn't go on twice as expensive vacation. But this lifestyle creep seems to be as magical as the savings factor for just the simple reason that um, people that are big savers tend to be frugal, and frugal people don't need a lot of money to drive their lifestyle. And where those two things intersect, or as I, as I say to a lot of people, they basically seem to be the same side of, you know, I mean, two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, nothing makes me more exciting than meeting with 40-year-old um, folks. Now, typically, we're meeting with people with a six in front of their age. Uh, but we do have a handful of younger clients uh, that I help. And to see a, a young couple with children saving and saving and saving, which means they're keeping their lifestyle in check, I can sit there and tell them, look, you guys will have options at age 55 that few people could ever dream about. And it's that frugality uh, is underappreciated. It's certainly by the people that are being frugal, it's underappreciated because it's not that not as much fun. But they're doing most everything they want to do. And, and that just reminds me of um, a podcast I was listening to by Morgan Housel, who's an economics and finance columnist, and he told a tale of two investors, and it's this exact story that you tell. There's a woman named Grace who didn't come from much of a background financially. She was, by all accounts, a loner through life. She lived by herself. She did not get married. She didn't have children. She lived in a one-bedroom home. And to her friends and family, she was just you know, making it by. Well, ironically, when she died at the age of 100, mind you, she uh, left an inheritance of $7 million. So somebody who, to most people, was relatively not well off had an amazing amount of money left over. Uh, the flip side of this story uh, that Morgan Housel talked about was a man who really came from the opposite sides of the tracks. He's uh, somebody who had been born into wealth. Uh, he went to University of Chicago, a prestigious undergraduate university and, and very prestigious graduate schools. Uh, he then went on to Harvard and got his MBA, one of the top MBA programs in the world, uh, worked his way up on Wall Street and became one of the uh, higher-ups uh, vice chancellors at an investment bank. And uh, as a result of this, uh, a day later after this uh, woman, Grace, who died at the age of 100, this man of uh, great experience, uh, great education, declared bankruptcy. Uh, so a, a person who had a seemingly uh, poor up bringing and a person who had the best of upbringing had the complete opposite outcomes of bankruptcy versus seven million dollars and it all boils down to the fact that the way you act has a substantial um, outcome in the types of assets that you have at the end of the game yeah go ahead Daniel you know, I think I think it's kind of like the keeping up with the Joneses type deal is it's really easy to get caught up with what other people have or what other people are doing and honestly sometimes now that I have more of a grasp of the numbers. I see people with the newest car or they're trading up to new houses, which seems to be every other year. But realistically, a lot of times they're not saving as much. And it is tough to see other people buying those new cars. But if you can really reflect and understand the needs versus wants, I think that's, that's really crucial at a young age. And I think what we see a lot of uh, nowadays is people who are quote-unquote Facebook wealthy. And so you see people comparing themselves to maybe their friends or others on Facebook, and you see them going and purchasing new things, like you say, or, or going on fancy vacations or buying this and buying that. And mentally you assume, gosh, they must be doing so right. well financially right. because look at what they're capable of doing. Well, you're not considering the fact that chances are they're not saving uh, at the right or an appropriate rate maybe that they should be, to afford this lifestyle. 
And so then you, you do get that lifestyle creep. You say, well, gosh, other people are doing it. Maybe I'm being too conservative and it can unravel. I think that's, uh, guys, I, you know, I'm almost 60. But I can tell you that this is more of a condition of your 20s, 30s, particularly your 40s. Um, just from my observation of life, it seems to people in their late 30s, mid 40s, this is where the corner of your eye gets distracted a little easier by the neighbor's new car again, the Facebook vacations that I talk about. Everybody likes to give you their highlight reel on Facebook. And seemingly everybody is making more money than we are. They must be, or they're just, something's going on. And that's, that's I think in the human condition, I think that's probably one of the tougher things that people are gonna deal with. But you go from 25 to 55 in a blink of an eye. And then when you get into your mid fifties, you, most people could care less what other people think about whether they have a new car or not, or trading up in houses. And you kind of get to, you get the relief of not feeling that pressure at all. And it's, it's really pretty wonderful. And it's interesting the attitude change you have. The people that used to impress you with their fancy cars, now suddenly you look at somebody with a fancy car and you go, oh man, that's, I feel bad for them. And that may sound silly or corny or maybe, 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 maybe they might think I'm jealous or something. Um, but that's even in my own personal life. Um, of being frugal over the last 10 years or so, because I had to be. Uh, suddenly, I'm almost 60, and I live in a very frugal lifestyle, and I'm at the peak of my career. Uh, so it's just that savings and lifestyle creep, probably the biggest one. That's where all the brute force can help you there. We listen to Paul Rudy's On the Money on WDWS. I'm here with retirement income certified professional Daniel Rudy and Ryan Repko, a financial advisor at Rudy Wealth Management. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. I'm going to get back to those nine things, guys. Uh, one of my wrote, num- these aren't necessarily in order when I wrote them. These are things that just came to mind. Invest in a taxable account if you plan on retiring early. Well, a couple of comments about this. When I say taxable account, I'm referring to a non-tax privileged account. So you think of it just as a brokerage account. And what happens to people is if they suddenly find that they've been reasonably frugal, they've been good savers, a lot of times it's easy to find out most of their savings are in their 401k plan or in IRAs, tax deferred accounts or tax privileged accounts. And sometimes this can be solved with the golden 55 rule. We'll talk about that. And this is very important. If you're one of those people that think you're going to retire at 55 or later, you know, that window between 55 and 59 and a half, we always tend to think that we have to wait to 59 and a half to get money out of our retirement accounts before we pay that 10% tax penalty. But the golden 55 rule says, look, as long as you can, your employer allows you to stay within the plan, as long as you're 55 the year that you separate service, and keep your money in that 401k plan, you can withdraw money out of that plan uh, without the 10% penalty. The caveats to that are sometimes they don't let participants stay in the plan and then you're forced to roll it over into an IRA and you don't get that privilege. Or they'll say, well, you can take money out, but you have to take all of it or nothing. You can't take out $20,000 a year for the next five years while you're between that window. Uh, So that's one way. But the other way then to make sure, and I think it's always a good idea um, I'm becoming more and more of a fan of it when I'm seeing that the clients that walk in with a taxable or non-tax privileged bucket of money along with their tax deferred, which is typically what we see. We see some Roth accounts, obviously, seem to have a few more options and control their taxation a little better. So I like this. I like the idea of having, uh, you know, you're still very, very well may have most of your assets in a tax privileged account, but if you could have two or three or four or five years of what you think you might withdraw from your overall portfolio in a non-tax privilege account. It leaves you lots of options of retiring earlier and paying lower taxation. And I think most people are drawn to lower taxation and more flexibility. You guys have anything to add on that? And that's really just about simple taxation. It's, it's You're not paying the ordinary income tax rates that you would from your tax advantage 401k or from your IRA. You're Hopefully, after having the money invested in for several years, you're paying the lower capital gains rate, which could be 15 20% compared to maybe your ordinary income. So that's the, the whole reason behind the, the thought. 
And we're going to go to the telephone. We have Stan on the line. Stan, are you with us? Yes, sir. Good morning. How are you, Stan? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Good. Uh, quite well, as a matter Glad of fact. Glad to hear that. Uh, um, got a question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, and that is, uh, how close do you think we are to uh, the uh, end of this bubble? Uh, I think we're in a bubble. I think that it is uh, not based on uh, what's actually going on with companies today, but what people are fantasizing about in the future. And the driving factor uh, of this bubble is the the, uh, fake money industry, Bitcoin, and all the rest of them. and I say that because back in 2007, when you could go down to your local bar and hear three or four people talking <laughs> about uh, buying a house down in Florida and flipping it in, in two weeks for a $10,000 profit, now you can go into your local bar and hear people talk about going online and buying Bitcoin, buying $10 worth of Bitcoin, and and in uh, a few weeks be able to make $20 out of it. I mean... Uh, I think a lot I think of bubble. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, would agree with you. Um, I can tell you, I wouldn't. It doesn't make me right and you wrong. Um, I look at earnings as they're real. Earnings continue increasing, um, and that that's fact alone. And we, I think, over this whole bull market, Stan, and I think we're in the early innings of a secular bull market, which can last another ten plus years. I may or may not be right on that one. So the big picture. I'm, I'm, I kind of have that going for me. I don't see bubbles. I don't think bubbles are seeable at the time. I, I think what, what you're sensing is, you know, and I'm with you in 2005, six, I almost on the worst time, you know, I was just lucky. I was almost going to get into the land speculation, doing exactly what you were saying. And I knew better, right? Uh, that clearly there was a real estate bubble in some areas. I, I, you and I wouldn't agree at all on the reason for the 2008-2009 decline, and I'm not going to get into that. Uh, Bitcoin, I think that's a sign that people are people. Uh, there always seems to be something like a Bitcoin uh, ginned up that I agree. I, I'm so tired of hearing about Bitcoin, which, by the way, has fallen 50% in the last few weeks. Doesn't mean anything, but it just you know how many people got hooked into it when it was at eighteen thousand and twenty thousand. Now it's at ten thousand, or at least last time I looked. I think the earnings are real, Stan. I think they they've increased every year. I think the market multiple is reasonable. I don't think it's induced by the Fed much at all. I think if you look at today's earnings on the S and P five hundred, take a reasonable valuation of seventeen seventeen and a half. If anything, I, I'm not into this overvalued crowd. I've been into the I think the market's probably undervalued, if anything. So I, I don't think you and I are going to agree on that. You may end up right. Um, I don't think I'm any more right than you are. It's just you asked me what I thought about it. That's kind of how I think about it. Okay. Well, let me let me just uh, uh, comment, if you will. I always think it's a bull market. The best time to buy is when you have the money. I agree. If you have the money, the patience and the time – you will do okay, if not very well. Uh, but we do have these bubbles. Sure. Uh, we had the dot-com bubble. Yes. And once people realized that they were uh, betting on companies that had been in business for a month or two months and, and never turned a profit. Or as I say, uh, say, as I say Stan, or run by 18-year-old boys that had never been in a room with a woman that wasn't their mother. <laughs> there you go. That's true, too. Uh, but it, I like that way to look at it, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had that. And, and then we had the, the real estate bubble. And, then, of course, the real estate bubble took down the financial industry. And, and here we, we are now have Dow 26,000. I guess you're making my point. Uh, these things are unknowable and they're irrelevant, Stan. That's my point is, okay, it, well, you may be right. Extent, I agree with you. Yeah. I, but I, we see these these massive downturns, always we see these uh, five hundred point drop days, et cetera, et cetera, and they are caused by something. Of course. And right now we have we have the we had the uh, real estate bubble pop, we had the uh, the dot com bubble pop, and now we're gonna I think we're gonna see the the Bitcoin bubble pop because the first flag has already been thrown, 
and that was the $400 million um, heist yep. of Bitcoin uh, just recently reported. Yeah, I, I and, think bit, I think Bitcoin reports like that. I think Bitcoin's irrelevant. It's such a tiny thing that if it went away tomorrow, uh, a handful of people are going to get hurt, and you know they're they're going to see it on the cover of Should Have Seen It Coming magazine. But I back up Stan and say, <laughs> look, I I hear this constantly. Then the problem with it, Stan is it it gets people to do something so how many times do we hear articles or read articles or hear people on cnbc and sell everything today we're in the biggest bubble it's the biggest crash and it, it, i suppose it could be true most often it's not and what are we going to do about it do we anticipate it and say okay therefore i guess the point is is it foreseeable enough where you can make an investment policy out of it? Let me ask you that. Uh, I think that there should be an investment policy for most people, and if they have invested in Bitcoin, they better get out. Now. Well, that that, that that wouldn't be. I wouldn't think that'd be part of an investment policy. But my serious question is, <laughs> we can't make an investment policy out of feelings or predictions. Um, we have to make an investment policy, saying, "Look, these people want to." I'll give you an example. The typical client that walks in our door is in their low 60s. Now, the month they were born, the Standard & Poor's 500 index was 20 rounded up. Last I looked, it was 26 or 2700. And the dividends have just been incredible all along the way with a few bumps. And you know, for those people, they're facing two to three decades of rising costs. At least if history's any guide, there's probably gonna be a rising cost uh, you know, component of their retirement. And so we need to create an income stream for the next two to three decades that the income stream is probably going to need to double and it may need to triple. Um, yes, I that, That's really all we know. And then we turn around and say, look, there's two ways to deal with that need. We can buy fixed income investments or we can buy rising income investments, it's the, the, which is essentially the ownership of the great companies of America and the world, or some combination of those two things. And it's that combination we need to get pretty right. It's never, you're never, like I said, I'd rather be approximately right than, you know, precisely wrong. Um, so we, that's, that's the way it happens. Yes. If I could just throw one thing out there and yeah. then I'll, I'll say that I agree with everything that you've said. And that'd be but the let me give best you day of your life. Of, Go, ahead, huh? Go ahead, Stan. I was just making a joke. <laughs> Anyway, the best day of my life, if I said that? Yes. Uh, probably so. But okay. anyway, um, uh, um, if you just look at uh, the Catholic Church as an example, the Catholic Church for decades and, and millennia have uh, insisted that people tithe first and give to the Church first, and then they can go out and buy food if they have any money left over. And if people invested the way the Church wants you to invest in the Church, you would have a very, very comfortable uh, retirement uh, right here on Earth. I don't think there's any question about it. You agree with me? I agree it's with all you. all good. And it, whether it's a Catholic, a lot of churches do it. There's equal opportunity out there. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, but there's a but biggest, being a Catholic the, myself, the, I know the guilt, Stan. <laughs> look at all the properties they own, all the properties that are tax-free. I, I mean, right. really. All right, Stan, I enjoyed your call today. Thanks for calling. we got to run. Thanks. Yep. Guys, we have a few minutes left. Um, the one I just kind of talked about a little bit with Stan was my next one would have been asset allocation. I was kind of leading down that path. You know, I, I Stan calls a lot. I th I, I get a, I, I like Stan. Um, I think some people don't like his views, but that's okay. They're Stan's views. But there's some useful information there. He brings up some really good points. Because um, he's not alone in this view that bubbles can be predicted or we might be in a bubble. And you notice I, I never say we're not. I'm just saying I don't know if we are or not. But I have to deal with and you guys have to deal with people's real lives. You have to create that rising income stream for the next two to three decades for people. And you have to do that in a reliable fashion. That's never going to be built on prediction. You're either a planner or you're a prognosticator. You can't, you, you can't mix and match here. You're one or the other. And prognostication to me doesn't work, so we're planners. And so we just have to have a really good idea of sensible strategies. We have to have a really good realistic concept of the amount of fluctuation we're going to have to live with to do that. And that's why, to me, and probably to you guys, 
these types of conversations, whether we're in a bubble or not, don't provide any useful information, you can't build an investment policy out of it. What do you guys have any thoughts on that in the last uh, couple of minutes? Because what are you going to do? Are you going to take this conjecture and, and hypothesis that we are in a bubble, which again, we may be, we don't know, and then pull money out for right. fear that maybe there's going to be a decline? Okay, so let's say you do that. We take that path, let's extrapolate it. Then you have to decide when is the appropriate time to get back in. And that can be equally, if not as more difficult to deal with than taking the money out in the and first let me, place. Let me tell you something, guys. If people think being invested in the stock market, if they want to call it that, I'm sorry, the only, I call it the ownership of the great companies of America. If they think that's pressure, when they get out, they'll tell you if they're honest, they felt more pressure and emotional strain when they were out than when they were in because they know darn well they need those returns of equities over the next two or three decades and they're not going to get them by playing those games. That is a rinse and repeat into your eternal sadness to try to anticipate what the next block of time's returns are going to be. It's, it's, you'll do that at your family's peril. We don't do that. We're not going to do that, and we don't listen to any of that. So essentially, long story short is don't try to prognosticate. Just stay invested, stay the course, and that should be based on your plan. That's it what should be based on your time horizon. I feel like just kind of like to sum it down really bluntly, if you're talking about asset allocation, then you need to be talking about your goals. Exactly. Those are one in the same. And if you're talking about anything else besides goals, then... That's it. Asset allocation is a slave of the plan. Well, guys, thanks for uh, joining me on Paul Rudy's On the Money. And thanks for everybody out there listening and for the folks that called. Uh, Stan, thanks. And uh, everybody else, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Ed Bond. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.